Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 429. And it's the first proper guest guest episode of the year. Like proper traditional Distraction Pieces. And it was a toss-up because the first two guests of the year are both amazing. And I, I was really torn on who I start with. So I just thought I'll mention them both. Um, the first two guests, next week's guest, let's let's go with then, is Emma Dabiri. And Emma is an amazing author. And we have one of the best conversations I've ever had about race, about the invention of race, and about so many things. She's absolutely f- f- fascinating. But this week's guest is also an amazing author. It's Ivana Lynch. You may know Ivana from, from Harry Potter you know, one of the biggest film series franchises of all time. You might know her from a lot of her veganism stuff online. She's doing amazing stuff in that world. But you might know her from her book, which blew me away. It's called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, The, 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 the Tragedy and the Glory of Growing Up. And I I read that. I saw Ivana on um, on, on Russell Howard and thought she, she was absolutely wonderful. I was taken aback by her general manner. Man, I'm stuttering a lot to kick the year off, aren't I? For any new listeners, I've got a stammer. Um, (laughs) It comes and goes. But yeah, if you're a new listener and you've just tuned in, you might be thinking your your phone's glitching out or whatever. But honestly, it's it's not normally this intense. But there we go. Anyway, yeah, I was taken aback by Ivana and I wanted to, to chat to her. So I found her agent's details and hit them up. And here we are. We had a lovely chat in, I think it was in November, end of November. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I should mention a trigger warning of, of eating disorders. It's something that is discussed a lot. It's a big part of, of, of the book, but she speaks on it all so eloquently and, and wonderfully. I really enjoyed it all. So, um, yeah, I think you're going to enjoy this chat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you want to support the podcast, head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com. There's merch. There's all sorts of good stuff there. Or patreon.com forward slash scroobiuspip. But more importantly, lock yourself in, get comfortable, and enjoy episode 429 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. Right, I'm here today with Ivana Lynch. How are you? How's how have you been in this in these strange strange old times? Good, yeah. Um, do you mean COVID wise? COVID wise, life wise in in general. <laughs> just kind of how are you? I think we're all we. Uh, We've all got quite used to being more isolated, and I'm kind of I revel in that. And from yeah. from from reading your book, I feel that you're probably quite comfortable in that. But it can be oh, it gets too much though, doesn't it? It can be easy to go too far into it, yeah. Because if, if we've got yeah. that natural propensity for it, a thing like a pandemic makes go. I'm loving this. Oh, hang on, I've not seen any other humans in yeah a month now. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and like, because I think that's the thing as a as an introvert, as a 
well, generally just an introspective person, I'm very entertained by my own thoughts. And that <laughs> is great when you're writing a book. It's really helpful for that kind of thing. But you're right. It can just get too much where you're just overthinking, overthinking, paranoid to leave your house. And it just, for me, I liked it at first. The first lockdown was good and it gave me a chance to... I kind of always fantasized about being locked in my house and just with my books being left out. Completely, exactly the same. It's that weird. It it wasn't until I started speaking it out loud, I realized how weird it was that I'd regularly think, oh, I'd like to have something like a a small accident or something. Yes. Just to be hospital bound for a few weeks or bed bound for a few weeks, just to have that permission to be on my own and not working. Which Absolutely. is w- weird when you start talking about it out loud and everyone's like, no, what? That's <laughs> You shouldn't be thinking that. But but uh, how else are you going to be forced to be still yeah. and yeah. To just, yeah. I don't know, a friend of mine, uh, this is probably the whitest thing I'm ever going to say, but she and I were like, oh, what is like a small crime you can commit to be put away for like three months? Yeah. But I'm sure, no, you know, I in your head, you're like, oh, if I went to prison, I could read books, I could catch up, but you'd end up actually dealing with prison, which would be awful, horrendous. It's, so. it's been interesting r- reading your book, and we'll get into it a lot, because obviously you talk about having an eating disorder, and there were parts of it I was reading thinking, I don't think I've ever had an eating disorder, but I have obs- obsessed over these things health-wise. Obviously, the further I got in, the more I was like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely haven't, <laughs> like, like comparatively. But it's interesting that because I've thought numerous times when I've been, I've got a bit more out of shape or whatever, I thought I could do with a few months in prison to get in really good shape, <laughs> just sit up some push-ups, all that kind of thing, nothing else to do. I've had the yeah. exact the same thought of yeah it's a weird fantasy and you kind of go yeah yeah i'd definitely be batman in his cell doing the sit-ups and working on my splits and all that but it's like no no i'm sure there'd be a lot more horrendous things to deal with there prison life yeah yeah i've I've been obsessing recently i'm a fan of of succession and there was a line that that greg who's a tall character and it had recently when he was looking at going to prison and he just said um, I'm concerned that because of my physical length, I could be the target for all kinds of misadventure. And I'm just, I adore it because I'm very <laughs> tall as well. So it's like, that's, that's now so my, my my go-to to line. But all line. of that aside, do you feel a kind of advantage of of the, the restrictions and the pandemics has been, it's a good time to release a really personal and open book and not have to see your family immediately? <laughs> Because that must that's be there must be some nerves there, kind of. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I sort of dealt with all that early on in the book, though, because I, I, I had to legally, because yeah. you know, your family could actually sue you if yeah. you if you portrayed them the wrong way. Um, I'm sure that has happened to many people, so I had to give it to them early on, and they all read it and they were very generous they were very gracious letting me portray them they they pretty much didn't touch the manuscript um my dad thought I portrayed him too much of a religious fanatic um so I had to tone things down but right. no that, that that was fine the main thing is keeping away from the community because I, I wrote this book kind of thinking it has a target audience like you know young sensitive mostly women like me who've been through this kind of thing but just for anyone who lives in Ireland, whoever writes a memoir, just know the whole community will read it. Like my dad's telling me of priest friends of his who are reading it. And I'm just like, oh no, I t- I, like it's kind of my diary in some way. So of course yeah. they will. But it's 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 a beautiful one because you will be, and particularly anyone from small towns or small communities, you do get a level of support 
but it's mm-hmm. also an absolute interest in everything that you do. It's 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 a it's a fine line between support and nosy neighbours. Yeah, type, yeah, yeah. It is type it's level both. of things. It just happens Definitely. that a lot of your information will be readily available on the internet, whereas Maureen down the road, it'll all yeah. be hearsay. Yeah, no, but and you also have to think if you do that, you have to be mindful of and careful of the people because I did include people from my hometown in the book. And Mm -hmm. some of them are quite, you know, they're caricatures almost. They're very funny, strange people. And that was actually the only feedback my mom gave me was on the neighbors, the neighbors. It's such an Irish thing. She just kept calling me being like, can you change this adjective? She changed an adjective on this one character about 10 different times. I was like, there's no way this person, he will not recognize himself. And I really yeah. don't think he ever will. But afterwards, I didn't, I didn't take, cause I don't grow, I, I moved out of there. I live in London. I don't live in the community anymore, but they do live in these very tight knit communities where everyone knows each other and everyone talks to each other and they want, you're right. They want to be supportive. There's a little bit of nosiness at play too. And since writing the book, I was like, oh, okay, that's a good point. If I ever write, and I don't think I will, if I ever write nonfiction again, I will just have to do it thinking yeah everyone in the village is going to read this everyone is going to read it and i might have to face them at some point (laughs) yeah exactly they're not gone (laughs) you know early on that it's the the feedback you got at times was it's quite cruel uh, towards yourself rather than anyone else Mm -hmm. did you have to resist any kind of because again i I loved early on the discussion of and and to be clear I, i mean i should give the name of the book it's it's the opposite of butterfly hunting, the tragedy and glory of growing up. And you do cover eating disorders, self-harm, suicide, fat phobia, self-hate in all sorts of different guises, as you put it. But I, I, I really related early on to your kind of joy of before it became too much of a known mm. eating disorder issue, your family and everyone all just kind of making jokes about it and it being a friendly thing that it's like... Mm oh, what's wrong with you, kind of having a go or taking the piss? Um, Mm. With that kind of atmosphere, did you then have to be careful when speaking about, you know, people outside of your family, as you say? Because you might have been prone to having a laugh or taking the mick and then actually going, oh, actually, they're they're not my inner circle. I need to... I need to make sure that they understand that I'm not being cruel. Um, Some cases, there was like, you know, when I went into writing it, because I I go into real detail about the types of treatment, you know, because a lot of it is a commentary on the mental health system, how we treat mental illness and children, that kind of thing. And there was definitely a part of me, my younger self, my 11 year old self who went through all that, that kind of wanted revenge, that kind of wanted to call out these people who some of them were cruel genuinely uh some of them were just they they just didn't see me as a human being they there was not so much thought to it so there was a sense of like uh, that's not cool what some of these adults did to me especially I'm actually not talking about the treatments in Ireland that I went through I'm more talking about the one I experienced in London which was the more extreme one and like that place was crazy and it got crazy it got like that you know that whole Stanford prison experiment where if you if you put people in power and then you put people as their prisoners yeah. it go there's this psychological thing that happens where they they start to enjoy the power and they almost so i wanted to call out things like that and i do have my fun in the book like there is dark comedy because i also think when situations are very bleak like that that's the only way to get 
to get through it is to to find the absurdity and the weirdness and the yeah the dark comedy but I did also find while writing this book afterwards I had a lot more compassion for maybe some of the the doctors who were treating me in Ireland who they just like it's uh, it's an allopathic model of medicine where they want to treat the symptoms to heal the illness and that just doesn't work with mental illness because it's not a physical it doesn't start with the physical symptoms yeah. it starts with something buried much deeper so I think you know <laughs> towards the end of the book my, my publishers were kind of like are you going to say anything about you know how you understand that these people um maybe didn't know how to treat your and, and, I, and that may be like oh yeah you know what they, they they weren't out just to get me it felt like that at the time because you know, my eating disorder did become like my closest friend. And these, then these people who were trying to kind of rip it off me or crush it out of me, uh, they felt like enemies. But yeah, in retrospect, I was like, they didn't know any better. That was yeah. 20, almost 20 years ago. And um, the understanding of mental health and of eating disorders was, it just wasn't what it is today. We were much more aware of these things. So yeah, I, I would say there were a few people who I'm like, no, nah, that person deserves to be called out. <laughs> yeah, and I had yeah. my fun with that. But um, but others, I felt like, OK, I kind of just want this book to reflect back and show them maybe what would have been more helpful. Um, and maybe, you know, a child's perspective on seeing through people who didn't really fully see her. And that's why, you know, my therapist in the book, Natasha, was such a breath of fresh air because she just yeah. saw she took a very human approach. So, um, yeah, I hope it gives some some mental health professionals more insight into the condition and, and how to treat it. Completely. And I, I love that and on the kind of on the mental health front. People often talk how it can be cathartic to write memoirs or write about traumatic periods and times in your life. I want to know if you found it cathartic to do the audiobook because <laughs> you you read so well, but you also you embody the characters. And it, it struck me as you were given the authority to make these traumatic childhood experiences into kind of almost fictions into mm. little stories mm. and scenes and characters mm -hmm. which struck me as that might have been really helpful for you to to kind of do that to embody them and to make them again not make light of them mm -hmm. but to make them a scene that you're playing rather than a trauma that you l lived through if that makes sense definitely um and just to make it make sense i think that I mean, we're because life doesn't really make sense. And sometimes I think I did look back on those times and be like, that wasn't fair. Why did I have to go through that? And other people didn't. But then, you know, finding the meaning in it, finding what I've learned from that and what I've was able to make out of it. Yeah, that's healing to be like, OK, there was a there was a purpose for that time and for those experiences I think I more just felt was it healing yeah it probably was I think it it, it was sort of making things good with the past with, with what happened it, it was like because you know as, as a child you don't have I could not have written this book at you know back then I needed to take whatever it was yeah maybe 17 18 years to put into words how I was feeling and the thing was like I have all the memories they're very much buried deep and that's what I used and obviously I had to go back and have conversations with my parents and go back through letters and diaries to kind of fill in the gaps because I couldn't recall conversations perfectly I could just recall the feelings but it was like that little girl felt betrayed and hurt and furious with how that situation was handled and 
I have talked about my story many times in, in the media and it was just like, I'm still not getting it right. No, people are still sort of garbling it and they're still turning it into a fairy tale. And the, so the book was me going, here's exactly what happened. I, I, so I actually, I work with um, a, a shaman teacher a lot. And in the sessions, we often do visualizations and it's about, you know, communing with different parts of yourself. And a lot while writing the book was, I'd revisit that young girl and kind of figure out what she wanted to say. And it was very strange. After writing the book, I did another session. And for the first time in my life since that time, she felt at peace. It was like I'd taken care of her. And that that was a kind of a profound healing to have happened from the book. I I, I love that. And really early on in the book, obviously, again, as we were already discussing, there's loads of dark and, and uncomfortable stuff that comes. But quite early on, I was struck by the family setup that you portray because it feels like a genuinely supportive and, and loving family setup and an openness to discuss the darker and heavier things mm-hmm. kind of thing, a comfort in in getting into these things. I know when I, I made a, a music, I'd get called out early on for often... D- discussing really bleak topics and I'd kind of be like I didn't Mm. know that was bleak I thought we were allowed to talk about all these things I thought these were just things that that people discussed and you touch upon at one point how to to really kind of loosely paraphrase how how happiness was something that you were aware is a goal but it isn't the only goal and it's it's something I've always been kind of a believer in that it's important to go through a lot of di- to to experience a lot of different emotions and that's what builds us as a character rather than feeling if you're not at happiness then you're failing mm-hmm. there can be all sorts of other things along the way so i guess how was that kind of or how do you feel that family life that had that openness to discuss i mean the book starts with you asking your mum what rape is and, mm. and in, in quite a casual and and friendly way how do you feel that kind of prepared you I guess for all that was ahead oh um do you know that's interesting that you that you see that because I actually I don't think me really? and my family talk about our own stuff we're, we're a very cerebral family there are all my family are teachers or have been at one point my parents both teachers dad's retired so I think we got good we like depth I just don't understand shallow superficial conversations I can't do it my family are the same but I I think we would discuss you know deep interesting human conditions through books through history through it's always through other people it's always through other stories and not our own stuff so actually you know all this stuff really interesting yeah all this stuff in in the book honestly the most terrifying thing of writing this book was giving it to my family because most of the book is kind of around uh, the height of my eating disorder and recovery and all that. But it was like once, because that was like such a difficult time and, and I felt a lot of guilt. I felt a lot of guilt for what my, I put my family through. And I felt guilt that this is the part of eating disorders that like people who don't have eating disorders don't really understand. I felt a lot of guilt for recovering like secretly. So it was like once that had passed... I didn't want to talk about it and we didn't want to talk about it. And and I think like people are afraid of triggering things. My parents were definitely being very delicate about the matter. So we kind of, once I'd finished f- sort of physical recovery, it was like, all right, all good now, marching on to the next thing. And honestly, we didn't talk about it till I wrote the book. Wow. And that was really, really helpful. Actually, there was a time actually where I um, was talking to my mom about 
the treatment center that I was at. And again, I found I had a lot of anger for being left there, you know, abandonment issues for, for, and I mean, it was more complicated than I actually portrayed in the book. Like my, my parents were kind of forced into putting me into this place, but I, I had this big chat with her. First, it was about the asking her about the logistics of it. And then I found I was still angry at her years later. Right. And she said to me something like, she said, well, I don't know what you want me to do. She she, she said, what, would you have had me not put you through treatment? And would you prefer that your life hadn't turned out this way, that you hadn't got the role in Harry Potter, that you hadn't gone on to have a career? And for a second, there was like, not even a second, for a moment, there was like, my eating disorder was like, yeah, I wish you hadn't. I wish I still had my problem and you just left me alone. There's still that like mean little voice that kind of just wants to shut your life down and that wants to defy everyone and to just kind of give everyone the middle finger, really. And I was shocked at that. I was like, oh, I didn't realize I, I still had that sort of secret thought and belief that. So that was very healing, you know, once I'd processed that. But yeah, if I hadn't written this book, we'd never have had these conversations. I never would have brought this up because it actually I mean it feels self-indulgent it feels self-indulgent to write a memoir at all so yeah there and there's a lot of guilt about that of am I really gonna call my parents up and just talk about me 20 years ago and say hey this thing this thing that was traumatic and that I still live with can we talk about it because it's just like no no get over yourself move on but you don't you don't just get over yourself you do have you have to face these things so yeah I would definitely recommend people write memoirs to process childhood trauma (laughs) well that's it I completely agree and I think your approach to it is refreshing and kind of essential in in the discussion on these things i love that you talk about and and you mentioned then that kind of that small voice kind of always still being there of your eating a disorder you touch upon at one point how you you, you're not going to mention any specific weights or anything like that because in reality that's your eating disorder Mm -hmm. kind of still proud of it still Mm -hmm. kind of saying oh look how how ill I was, mm. look how small I got and look how, how close to death I became, I guess. And that was a really powerful and interesting thing to read, that you were acknowledging that sometimes those things can actually be, or the most, the lowest lows can end up being the thing that you almost boast about to still, to keep feeding that disorder mm. in the back of your head, to kind of, to mention it and to and to and to boast about it. So, uh, when did you realize and decide that that wasn't a route that you were correct to take? I guess I th- I think I've always known that when thinking about writing this book because it it it's such an it's a complete submission to the ego, and I mean that's what an eating disorder is. It's your ego taking over and like identifying fully with the numbers, the size, all these little things. And it's, you lose your personality because you're so obsessed with, with measuring these things. And obviously it's about more than that, that those are just the superficial things, but the superficial things are sort of what your mind latches onto. And so like when I was going through my eating disorder, when I was going through treatment, classic thing, people are giving you books being like, oh, this book is meant to be amazing. It helps. And, and I just, I read so many where 
I just felt like people, the authors were bragging about their statistics because that is to someone with, especially with anorexia, it just, they just want to get lower and lower. And I've talked to other people who've gone through who've said, oh yeah, reading about some person's lowest weight, that made me go, great, that's my goal now. I'm going to get worse than her. I'm going to get lower. Yeah, because it's like, you, you just want to, you want to be invulnerable you want to be the best you want that nobody can be smaller or thinner or better at that and it's so weird and fucked up but that's what it is nobody Mm. can take that from you and i see also the media does it too whenever they talk about eating disorders they they post the shocking pictures and the sensational stuff and that reinforces the idea to people with eating disorders that you have to look like that to get treatment or if you don't look like that you're not sick enough so you just have to live with this inside yourself and it's like the eating disorder is there long before you see it it takes root just really a long time years before and it it can't I don't know I just think it's so damaging for people seeking treatment for people who are who are going through it to be identifying in sort of by what they look like yeah I just felt it doesn't need that it's if I'm going to make the case that it's about something much deeper than that and that the medical professionals should not just be focusing on these shocking symptoms and obviously, I, I say that knowing that you can't just ignore physical treatments as well, because people can get so severe that they just can't treat themselves at all. But yeah, I just felt if I'm going to make a case that it's about something deeper, and we have to be looking at the treating the deeper root issue, then I'm not going to talk about the numbers. And I, and I don't want any young person to read my book and secretly, privately make a little vow to herself that I'm going to get lower than this person, you know, it doesn't yeah. you just don't and, need that. And it became all the more understandable to me as you kind of marked the journey from from health kick to health issue mm-hmm. kind of thing because it did seem to start out at first it's like no this is just I'm taking care of myself you mm-hmm. know I I, I want to run I want to eat eat the right things and so on and so forth do you think that routine is how you justify it to yourself kind of thing that that you're not trying to hurt yourself or damage yourself you're striving for excellence in a way again it seems strange if you've not been through it but you're striving for an excellence that you know is different from what others may see as 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 excellence in health or or whatever else it may be yeah definitely i i think you know a lot of people i i I would say with mental health conditions like this that's why the book you know it doesn't start and end with physical recovery i think it's more it's about something more broad it is about self loathing really uh and self-loathing to me is about a need for safety a need to be sure and certain that no one can hurt you a lot of people who have this kind of well to me it's sensitivity they find this like standard of perfection they 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 latch onto perfection because they want to be safe they want to find something that will kind of guarantee them a place in the world a purpose in the world and you know, that can be channeled into other things. And I think recovery is you do learn to channel that into other things. As my therapist, Natasha, in the book, she says, you kind of don't recover straight away at first, you don't achieve full recovery, you graduate, you upgrade your problems, you find other outlets for this, I don't know, this intensity, this, to me, it can be channeled into creativity. But yeah, like, I think as a child, feeling a total lack of self-esteem and feeling overwhelmed by the world and this pressure to find your place in it. It was like the 
the easiest thing to to find to channel my energy into was self perfection slash self-destruction mm. was eating like the eating in some ways is the most is the closest most intimate thing to us and there's this sense you know the, i think some and not not everyone will find that other people will find other sort of destructive outlets like like drugs or alcohol or relationships or or people might even find that search for perfection that intensity through like their skills their you know they might be obsessive about learning an instrument and and that can be seen as positive but it can go too far but yeah for me it was just like that was the thing I found I sort of knew like I was good at controlling my food Uh, I knew I was people were already commenting that I was quite small and that just became like oh right I can achieve I can achieve a standard of perfection here that I can't in anything else and that felt safe and that felt lovely I know that's a really weird word to use but it was like oh phew here's one thing I can do every day that I can be good at and then it felt like oh it doesn't matter if I'm I'm useless at everything else it doesn't matter if I fail in school if boys don't like me here's one thing that's certain and and it 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 ties into a societal thing that I think a lot of people have had to face in the pandemic is that we've built a society that we put so much of our self-worth on productivity that, yeah, that, that, yeah. that all we are is how productive we are. Yeah. So if you've found that thing that you can be productive at through being really strict with your diet, strict with your exercise, then that is going to be where you find all of your self-worth. And I think when that first lockdown hit, a lot of people struggled because mm. all, all we know is our jobs, if you know what I mean. And mm. it, it's it's a troubling way to have society because there was a time when society was more focused on quality of life and leisure Mm. and we were pushing towards a four-day working week and things like that whereas now we've gone the opposite way of you've got to work hard and be the best Mm. and be everyone so yeah and that's addictive isn't it that feeling of yeah like and especially I think with with food and weight stuff it's addictive and it's also totally numbing and that's I mean that's kind of the core message of the book is that it really deadens your creativity it Mm. just kind of sucks all the life and joy out of your life because you're you're trying to live and measure your your self-worth you're trying to measure your self-worth as a human being by numbers it's like that's not for people that's for machines and the more you do that I don't know I feel like the grayer and more just empty your life will become so you know I'm always I'm careful talking about this because I don't want people to to feel like oh that sounds interesting that sounds like a good way of measuring my self-worth because it's like yes it is addictive and it is like there's a soothing element to it but you lose so much by making those choices to try and perfect yourself and perfect your routine you lose this ability to create and and this daringness because perfection is very confining it's just this little box that sets all these limitations on you and that's to me is the opposite of creativity I suppose so I I I don't I think I'll probably always be a a little bit of a perfectionist in some ways but I try not to be I try to to throw that out the window because it just yeah, it brings everything to a dead halt to me. I, I mean, I'll, I always find it fascinating what it is that gets th- through to, to to someone as well. I'm always sceptical of people that claim to have the answer or the solution but because I think with anything mental health-wise, it's so personal and individual. What may mm. work for one may not work for another. And I think because of 
you're at that point seeming obsession with the numbers and working all of this it wasn't traditional doctors approaches or medicine that got through it was walking into a room with someone who had fairies on the wall and and (laughs) and and and, and all sorts of other things like that but again as soon as i started to to get to that bit being a bit of an old skeptic i was like all right but then it was really clear straight away that her goal was to address the root cause rather Mm -hmm. than the result and rather Mm -hmm. than the effects so she wanted as you say to find out what you weren't happy about and find out why you were obsessed with this rather than everyone else had been well here's 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 the amount of calories that you have to eat or here's the amount of weight that you have Mm -hmm. to put on Mm -hmm. how was that to to find someone even going in skeptically yourself because at that point your parents had taken you to numerous Mm -hmm. doctors and numerous experts how was that to find someone who was like no I don't care about I'm not going to talk to you about calories or weight at all until Mm -hmm. we've got to the root of 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 how you are and 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 who you are I guess I mean meeting that person Natasha was life-changing for me it really was and I I didn't fully appreciate I didn't appreciate at the time I was a kid but now in retrospect I just see how evolved her approach is and I I think it's it's about something more than just her personal you know demeanor and her getting me it's that she wasn't demonizing mental illness Mm -hmm. um I just think there's there's something so wrong about us terming things within ourselves, good or bad labeling them I think it's and I think it's a sort of um relics of the religious brainwashing where we've got evil yeah. we've got good parts of us because up until I'd met Natasha my therapist every doctor I'd ever gone to see had gone had sort of looked at me seen the illness and seen okay this this like they were facing off against it like they were the enemy to this thing yeah. and again when that feels like your best friend the, the only thing that you're sure of in the world the only thing you like about yourself the people who set themselves up against it you're going to be their enemy too you're not going to let them in you're never going to be vulnerable with them you're never going to tell them the truth about how you feel it's only going to send you deeper within to your in yourself in your darkness you're going to alienate strengthen yourself the bond more. right exactly, exactly the bond with the the eating yeah. disorder or whatever else it may be and it's going to make you more conniving better at hiding it and i think this is the same with everything like you know with with a, a drug problem if 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 that's the thing that's your comfort and somebody tries to wrench it away you'll just get secretive about it yeah. with a relationship an abusive relationship if everyone's like this person is terrible but you secretly love them you hide it and you become better at coping and you you become fake with everyone. So her kind of not looking at this thing, her her seeing that, okay, you have this coping mechanism for a reason because you're sort of protecting yourself from a deeper pain. So I'm not going to just pull this thing away. I'm going to address the deeper pain so you can relinquish your grip yeah. on the coping mechanism. And she just did something so powerful when I first met her. It was that I think because up until then, everyone had been my number one and even my parents you know they were all trying to take this thing away from me so I never admitted that there was anything wrong and I really felt there was nothing wrong I was kind of even though I was exhausted and like hungry and going through all these physical symptoms that were difficult to deal with I felt I'm great I've got this this is much easier than what I was dealing with before which was this sense of nothingness and this pain and it was when you know this person who just looked at me saw a person wasn't trying to fix me right away or take this thing away she just looked at me and said how are you like I felt a wall come down I've just and I start I just 
on block something, I just immediately start crying. And that was the very first moment where I said, oh, okay, I'm, I don't feel okay. Everything's very hard. And that's, that's only the first time where it kind of started to address what was going on. She, she also kind of seemingly showed you the the right to to not feel okay that you had had the right to not mm-hmm. feel okay despite again you touch on you know my parents haven't separated i wasn't abused all these kind of things there's a a, a a a saying that's that's popular in the mental health kind of world these days that i've never felt quite comfortable with that it's okay to to, to not feel okay because i think obviously it is but mm. that also kind of suggests that you don't have to do anything to try and help yourself in mm. in that situation um and that can be as damaging i feel if we can just if if we get comfortable because there's so, so many means and techniques now whereas you, you have a right to not feel okay it just sits far more comfortable with me if you know what i mean because it means mm-hmm. that we all have a right to to be going through this again a thing that i think stops a lot of people getting help is them feeling well a lot of people have got it a lot worse. You know, what right mm. have I to be complaining or to be unhappy? So I guess how important was that to kind of have someone identify that and show you that that, that it's, y- y- your feelings are valid and your unhappiness is, is valid? Yeah, well, it's a big thing and it's a big it's a big point I wanted to put across in the book because I think a lot of people don't get help because they think, like me, they come from privilege, you know, from a very loving family, middle class upbringing, um, all that stuff and just feeling like guilty for feeling awful and that and that just makes them think, yeah, other people have, have bigger problems. But I, I don't know, I, I just think it's a deeper thing, isn't it? It's like an existential yeah. reckoning. And it's all relative. It's relative to your life and your existence. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter how bad someone else has it if you're in a really dark place anyway, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. that That's not going to bring you out of it. So, yeah. yeah. And I think, like, it's different. Eating stories take shape in different ways for different people. And, and there might be a triggering event for some people. Um, but for me, it was, it was just... Yeah, there was nothing. And I, I suppose I wanted to show in the book for family members who are asking the same questions my mom asked, like, what did I do wrong? Did I not love you? Mm. That they give themselves a bit of just peace and, and grace and say, like, there's nothing I did wrong. I just have to be here and support this person. I have to stop questioning what mistakes I made. And that's the thing. I struggled with that when Natasha would say, we're, we're going to get to the root issue. And I really felt there's nothing. I'm just a useless waste of space for a person. And like, we're, you're not going to get to the end of that. But that's what it is. As I say, I think it's existential. I think it's this deeper search for meaning. And I think people don't realize that young kids will be struggling with that stuff. But I think, you know, we're getting a bit spiritual, but like, we're at a state of humanity where we're evolved enough and, and younger people are coming into the world and kind of saying, what's the point of me? Why am I here? What am mm. I doing? And if they don't have that, they'll find something else that gives them a reason for being. And it's a shallow thing like an eating disorder. It, it's a shallow, useless thing that sucks their spirit dry. But it means that they don't have to ask the much more difficult, complicated question of what's the purpose of my life and what's what's the meaning of it? Yeah, and and I mean, w- one of the beautiful things about y- your story is that sprinkled throughout all of these struggles in Ireland, 
at, at, at peaceful pastures in the UK and all the horrible things that you kind of had to go through there. And again, uh, we won't go into them now, but I highly recommend that people read the book because it's quite astounding. It's it's like the, the horror stories of the camps in America to 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 to, to, uh, uh, to pray you straight kind of thing. Oh, yeah, Those kind of really therapy, restrictive, yeah. horrible things there but there's a sprinkling of harry potter throughout all of this because that (laughs) that was always your escape and your and and what you'd read and where you'd feel safe so i want to kind of talk about how it was to see about the open audition and to go for it because again it's in the fairy tale Mm. knowing how it all went it's this it's this wonderful journey but in the reality that was a huge gamble because as you touch Mm. upon this was your saviour. And mm. if you go there and don't get it, <laughs> it, it might it. not be the same anymore. <laughs> no, it might it not wouldn't. be your 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 go-to anymore. So, yeah, yeah. how was that to kind of jump upon that and, and take that that risk? Yeah, I suppose um, I should have seen it as a risk, but I didn't. But I understand my, you know, my mum and dad have very different perspectives. My dad was like, yeah, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. He's very optimistic. Whereas my mum would be cautious and her way of expressing love is to try and keep you safe. But uh, like, yeah, I mean, that's a big point as well that I'm making in the book that you you have to find something bigger to to sort of want to live and want to fight your eating disorder or you want to fight your whatever problem you're dealing with. I don't think anyone gets better just for the sake of their health, especially as a child. Like as a child, you don't, you don't think about health. You're not thinking about the long term effects on your body. You're just trying to find a reason to get up in the morning and yeah, like creativity, dreaming. At that time, acting was the big thing that made me be like, oh, maybe maybe it is worth, like life is worth getting up for. Yeah, and I was very lucky. I had people, as I say in the book, that I had people who nurtured that, that dream, who didn't dismiss it. And I think that is so important in those very fragile, precarious early days of recovery, that you need people who kind of rebuild the person help you recover the person who has been sort of eroded by this other thing this other destructive influence and yeah you know my parents were taking me to acting classes and funding that and obviously I was very very lucky to have those opportunities and then the Harry Potter open audition came out of the blue and yeah my mom tried to talk me out of it just thinking this girl is too fragile to take on such a big crazy world and my dad, my dad was like, let's just see what happens. And I don't know. I just think you have to take those risks. You have to take those big, bold risks in order to, uh, you know, pull yourself out of the darkness and, and, and find something that is, yeah, worth fighting your demons for every day. Because, you know, even after you get the dream, they'll, they'll still be there and you'll still have to find things. And, um, again, that's why the book doesn't end with Harry Potter that like, I think for many years I was just always operating from this sense of lack and this sense of I have to find a a reason for existing to justify my existence and I think now I'm just at a point where I'm like I don't run I don't try and fill those gaps as much I don't frantically try I'm more just when I feel that sense of worthlessness I just try and feel the feelings and let it pass but it is hard like it is tempting to try and do something to fix it yeah you know yeah of course so so, I mean so how was it to because again it's 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 crazy to me that kind of your first big experience on on a film set was the biggest film franchise in the world Mm -hmm. um 
arriving at Leavesden, my, my first ever day on set as an actor was at Leavesden, and Leavesden is it's wow. like it's like the the film sets in the movies. It's yeah, not like yeah. you, you will have done other roles now where it's far more yeah, low it's key. Somebody's it's apartment. not this big thing. Yeah, exactly. Whereas <laughs> this is you're arriving at this amazing yeah. place, yeah. so it must have just felt magical. And how was it to adjust to being part of it rather than? S- s- simply being a fan again you you talk loads in the book about kind of remaining almost on the outside whilst in there at the start mm-hmm. you know trying to hold back your fandom and not feeling yeah, yeah. A, a, a worthy part of the gang kind of thing but yeah how was yeah. that impact um, wise yeah it was totally totally overwhelming at first of course and it was just like I was so excited so bowled over by everything I saw but then also yeah feeling like who the hell am I to be here you know what what and and then like obviously I worked so hard to try and get the part I I really give everything but then once you get it you're like oh no they've made a mistake you know why did they hire me so it's that strange yeah that inner conflict of feeling you're you're born for this but also feeling a bit of a fraud but I, I feel so blessed I had that that perspective and that experience and you know I have a lot to say on fan culture I think it is giving when you become obsessive about other people I think it is giving away your power and I think you should see that love and admiration as sort of keys to who you are to something about yourself that you're not expressing which is what Harry Potter was for me which is what the actors in the because I did idolize the other young actors in the film and then you know got to know them got to learn that they're human and vulnerable and um (laughs) they're flawed too and that they're just creative people trying their best but yeah I'm, I'm glad I had that because I think maybe if I if I hadn't met them and gone through that I would have always put myself below people like that and and not I think part of growing up and part of maturing was realizing oh, I have my own gifts and I have to, I I need to empower myself rather than giving my creativity away to kind of worshipping and deifying other people. Yeah, and completely. And that that comes across that those moments of realisation because it feels like, like one of the things I, I loved was also one of the things that made me almost sad was I loved your kind of, you saying that you felt almost a responsibility to play a Luna, a love good because you knew that character so well, and you were the one to do it right. And I was, I was sitting there, kind of saying, "That's beautiful and amazing," <laughs> but also, it's because of you. It's because of who you are and what you've done. And it felt like you're almost giving all the all the credit over to the character as such, r- rather than patting yourself on the back and going, "No, I have a responsibility to this character because I'm the best person for it as well." So <laughs> it was beautiful to see that kind of seemingly growing into the idea of you adding to this Mm. what is or adding to the collective I guess and being part of that do you know like I think there's such a difference between art that you make you know from your heart from a sort of soul calling and art that you make from your ego your mind and I, I do I actually find it hard to distinguish sometimes but I just think when you're making creating something even a character and it's in service to them and to me the the feeling is very similar like to being in love when you love something or someone so much it like calls up this better part of you 
you'll be more confident, you'll be more purposeful, you won't get in your head thinking, oh, am I good enough and, and all these doubts and everything. And I've I've had both. I've had other projects where I didn't care about the character so much. And then I got, mm. I, I was too much thinking, am I going to come across as a good actor? Are people going to think this? Yeah. And it's just, it's pure ego. It's not, it's not like, there's nothing, there's no higher calling to it. And it's like night or day, you know, the, the difference between those kind of performances. And I feel very lucky that my first professional job was the kind of character that sort of summoned that love and that devotion to something higher than myself. Um, because, yeah, there have been other parts I've played where it's like, oh, if I'd started with that, I wouldn't have a career, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. But it, there's there's some beautiful moments, like, as, you, as you say, it doesn't end with with uh, uh, with the the Potter films and there was a beautiful bit of advice that that you got well from an acting teacher in in mm. LA as you were moving back to the UK and just to worry in the other direction and again it's something I talk to my partner about a lot because I'm kind of when she's nervous about things she'll make all of these these fictions up of these all these fictional bad ways it could go mm-hmm. and I'm like well if we're making it up why don't we just make up the really good ones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. If 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 we're if we're pulling it out of nowhere, let's go. Oh, imagine it goes yeah. better than it, you you could have hoped. And as your your teacher says, and you find you're too busy and you've got too many roles and you're in too much yeah, yeah, a demand. Yeah. And that was such a beautiful bit of of ad- advice to get, and seemingly a really k- k- key point for you because you talk about how LA has its wonderful like mm. there's there is something magical about LA and there are mm. magical things there, but it's also I think it can also be very damaging, de- de- depending on where you l- you l- land or focus. Because, as you touch upon, there's an endless amount of people who will uh, take your money to solve the exact <laughs> problem that you have, uh, or that you think you have, and tell mm. you about a few more problems that you've had that you have, but maybe haven't noticed yet. So mm. it can be a weird one there. But that was a beautiful bit of advice that seemingly really crucial t- a time in your life and career. So yeah, did that kind of help and guide you? Absolutely. That was, I think that's honestly the best advice I've ever gotten. I just love it so much. Worry in the other direction. Yeah. Um, and because it's like she's saying, listen, if you're going to torture yourself with the future, which is a concept, which might never happen, you know, it's just yeah. sort of a piece of your imagination at that point. If you're going to do that, then why not just spend your time uh, imagining good things and like just this idea that what a waste of your imagination that you're going to think of all the worst, most horrible things that can happen when you could spend that time thinking of the best. And, you know, they say that worrying is suffering twice. So like you say, you imagine, and and I know why people, I know why we imagine these terrible situations happening, the worst case scenario, because we're trying to protect ourselves and trying to be a little bit prepared and not be so uh, hurt and caught off guard. But you know, often those things don't happen. And then you're just like, oh, I just kind of ruined a big piece of life there by imagining awful things. And I could have avoided that. But I think there's, I mean, there's something deeper to it as well. I really believe that thoughts are, so I'm all into like law of attraction stuff, um, that thoughts are attractive, that they have um, an energy to them. You know, there there's like small examples of that. Like I always find that if I learn a new word, I suddenly hear that word everywhere. It's just like, so if you channel your energy and your, and your, so if you are the kind of person who likes to daydream, has an overactive imagination, likes to imagine scenarios, 
if you spend your time thinking about, oh, what's the best possible thing that could happen here? It like changes your energy and your outlook. And I really think people can sense that about you. If you're a more optimistic person, if you're more positively inclined, I think people can sense that. And then just better things happen to you. Better people come into your life, better experiences. Yeah. So I, I think it's more, there's a practical element to it too. And I, I found it hard because for so many years, I had sort of trained myself, conditioned myself to think worst case scenario. So it was a deliberate catching those thoughts and changing them. And I have things like AIDS, you know, I have... I journal about these things. I write affirmations. I have a app on my phone that literally sends me <laughs> positive affirmations, which on bad days, it can come off as sarcasm. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> these these things all help. And I think, yeah, worry in the other direction. It's just a much better use of your imagination. I love it. I love it. Well, before I, I wrap things up, I want to touch a, a little bit upon your veganism and mm-hmm. the 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 kind of beauty box mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for vegan stuff and 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 the chickpeas podcast because i think it is it was all the more fascinating having read the book and hearing how vegetarianism and veganism in some of those establishments is seen as the as as an excuse for an eating disorder or a way to allow an eating a, a disorder rather than just caring about animals and not wanting mm-hmm. them to to be harmed so how important was that to kind of and how hard was that to get to get those things up and running and and push that and become a a voice for that area it just kind of happened you know it was one of those things where I didn't really plan it and in a weird way I I almost wish I hadn't gone so hard at it because it did so it was quite hard to write my book because I was involved in so many vegan organizations and charities and that the thing I care so much about these causes I believe in them so when charities ask me, will you do this? Will you do? I'm like, yeah, of course. And it's like, oh no, I have to find a balance. I wouldn't say it's my passion because it's something so awful that happens to animals. And I just think we we all would get it if we weren't conditioned to to not think about animal sentience and, and their feelings. I mean, if if you like dogs, you get veganism. You it, you know, you understand that they're they're just different to us and they have feelings and they have lives and and they should be respected. So it's like. I wish I didn't have to keep banging on about it. It's just mm. that I think the world has made it too easy to ignore animals and what they go through and how we've commodified them and convinced ourselves that it's fine to do horrible things to certain animals and other ones we'll treat like royalty. There's just so much cognitive dissonance there and I, I don't get it. So um, yeah, that just I suppose that just happened. And my, my favorite way of doing activism for that is the Chick Peeps podcast, the, the podcast I started with my friends, because it comes from a like an optimistic outlook that if we all understood, we all would be vegan, we all would make more ethical choices. I, I do really believe that humans are innately good. And I don't come at it like with judgment and, and, and anger for it's weird. I think when I first went vegan, I did hate everyone. I was like, oh, everyone's kind of evil to think that this is okay. But then the more you go on, it did the opposite to me. It made me way more compassionate. It made me see like, God, there are all these amazing, incredible, sensitive people who I love, my own family who love animals, who are wonderful people, but struggled to change their food um, habits and their choices. And I, and so that's the approach I take with my activism now. I, I think of people like my family who are deeply loving and kind people, but who need help to learn how to 
untangle themselves from the very problematic relationship we have with animals and ag- animal agriculture. So yeah, that, sorry, I could go on and on um, about this, but no, I'll leave I, it there. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, well, I'll wrap things up by kind of asking what's ahead. I saw on IMDb, again, IMDb will often be inaccurate. I have half the stuff, <laughs> but I saw Bat, uh, Bus Girl with Jessica Henwick writing and directing, and she's amazing. She's oh, just know, killing Jess, it at the moment. I, think, I, I don't. I'm, I'm just as a fan. I loved her in um, Iron Fist, in in Lo- Love of Monsters, and the new Matrix. It looks amazing. So, uh, what, what's the deal with that, and how did that all come about? And yeah, is there anything else that's that you know that's ahead? Yeah, there's a couple of things ticking around. Um, I mean, you know, as an actor, I t- I tend to. I don't know what the hell is coming with acting. I'm like, I yeah. am open. I want to do more theater. I want to work with more. It's incredible... the best and worst thing about the industry, isn't it? That exactly. Kind of, yeah. I don't know what's happening, but it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. That's the <laughs> thing. You never know. Coming. Something yeah. will happen and that will be great. But the rest of the time. So I think my philosophy now to planning my life is to just go, right, I'm only going to talk about the things I can control. Yeah. <laughs> so I want I want to keep writing. I want to write fiction next. That's the plan. Um, but yeah, Bus Girl was just a, a short film. It's Jess Henwick's, uh, I believe her directing debut. And um, she, I just, you know, I looked up her stuff and I was just so blown away by her her creativity and just how yeah. much she does she's just a force and you feel that on set so um yeah i don't i don't do many shorts because you know you, you don't have many days to get into character and to grow yeah, with the character course. but i was just like oh, i definitely just want to be around whatever this woman does next I love so that. have you got any plans to write screenplays and stuff but, but, but because i said i really enjoyed your i think you've you've got a wonderful turn of phrase and and way of of writing so does that interest you or do you want to no keep focusing on on books that's very nice of you thank you i think i'm probably much better with prose because i yeah. do i like i like all the internal stuff i i remember once i tried to do i did like a screenwriting course at ucla and it was all about plot and i was like i just am so bored <laughs> because it, it's too structural you know i'll tell you what i was surprised when i got i did a, a show uh, written by S- S- Stephen knight and him and another guy i worked with kurt Sutter really inspired me to start working on scripts because the, they wrote in beautiful prose as well and they were whereas the script writing advice I'd got in the past was essentially you've got to be enter the room mm. and start kind of like mm-hmm. a, a jump st- straight into it and then I read a few scripts that were these beautifully w- woven and written things it's like really? oh, right, you yeah you kind of can it, it inspired me a lot to go right well because my proclivity is much more flowery language in a way kind of thing and really getting into it but being almost given the permission to still write in that way but on on screenwriting was wow yeah was massive and it was purely because of getting scripts off writers i adore and going yeah this is all the stuff i was told Mm. you're not allowed to do (laughs) and these are some of the most successful people in the world kind of thing so yeah wow yeah any books you can recommend not really. When I was trying to get into script writing, a friend of mine, Kelly Marcel, who wrote um, a Saving Mr. Banks and loads of others, her advice was you can read some script writing books, but read good scripts okay. was her advice, was just get hold of good scripts and read them. And then it kind of, it it t- it teaches you, you learn as you're, as you're reading kind of things. So, so, okay. yeah. 
Oh, thanks. I will. I'll take that on board. Yeah, I really, I think I've just felt like that's not for me. Somebody else can do that. But yeah, hearing you say that and yeah, I just like, as you say, flowery lyrical prose and internal yeah. monologues. So, but I guess it can be done. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, whatever's ahead, I'm excited for it. I mean, oh, actually, just before we go, as we record this, uh, we've got... Cr- a Christmas around the corner. Have you got any exciting plans? Because again, it's something that comes up in the book as originally as a, a negative period because it was, <laughs> as I said, an enemy of your of your disorder. Mm. Is it something that you're excited about now and can and can jump into? Oh yeah, no, I love it, and I've no fears about that. I know for a lot of people with eating disorders, it brings up a lot of fear and food and lack yeah. of control. But that's no, that's all behind me. And actually, I would say veganism has really helped. Yeah. put my weird relationship to with food to bed it's it's all positive now and i i really enjoy the challenge of you know at christmas helping my mom pick out vegan christmas foods and um yeah it's just more about learning new ways of cooking and and nourishing your body nourishing my body so it's all good um but yeah hopefully hopefully i'll get home i'm gonna go home for a week and see them and a week is enough that's definitely plenty (laughs) but yeah go home and reconnect i love it yeah how about you um yeah i'm i've i live near my i've got my parents on eva's eva's side of the town we live in so yeah i'll be seeing them keeping it all very low-key and nice and probably yeah cool. trying to relax a bit but i appreciate your time it's been an absolute joy to chat oh uh, likewise no for your time today and and thank you for reading the book and asking such sensitive sensitive questions because it makes all the difference in the interview um i, and I always worry because i get quite rambly but because if i'm really excited to talk to someone i'll really overwrite my Oh, Here's yeah. my thought. This, 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 this. And then I'm like, hang on, just ask a question and shut up and let them talk. So, yeah. It's hard, isn't it, to ask an open-ended question because you're trying to show them, like, you appreciate the work. That but I then give also... a shit as well and kind of go, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's a safe a, a safe discussion place. Oh, no, you nailed but, it. Yeah, Thank you very much. It's been a joy. Much. Yeah, likewise. And, and congrats on the podcast. Like, Thank I, you. I, having done a few a couple of seasons of a podcast, I know how hard how much hard work it is. And I just yeah. think it's amazing what you've done. Seven years. That's incredible. I appreciate that. You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 429 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. And I told you, I wanted to start the the the, the first proper, proper episode of the year with a bang. And what an amazing guest. I really, I loved having that conversation. So um, big love and thanks to Ivana Lynch. As I said, I can't recommend her book enough. Following her on socials, she's a joy to follow recently the trials and tribulations of finding out that you're the smelly one at circus training because you can't find a vegan deodorant that works well so uh, that was that's that's been a joy apparently she's found some great solutions so keep watching genuinely um a big fan of this young lady excited for all that's ahead also excited for you to hear next week's episode because it's another one. It's one of the best I've done. It's with Emma DeBerry. I won't ramble on, on about it now, though. So I'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.